Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4443 of the Run Run Live podcast. I will apologize in advance. I've been having a hard time staying positive in these last couple of weeks. And I think some of it is seasonal. You know, maybe you have these these same blue periods as well. And of course, some of it is the ongoing apocalypse and the level of uncertainty and weirdness in our world. So, If any of that bleeds through, I'll apologize in advance. But here is the good news. Being who we are, lifelong endurance athletes of one form or another, we're going to take this as an opportunity. We're going to flip this on its head. You and I, we, are going to ask better questions. And I don't have all the answers. But we can ask the questions and have the conversations with you, and potentially together we can find some strategies to maybe do better. And at the end of the day, I guess that's all we can ask, right? To do a little bit better. So in today's show, we are going to talk to fellow runner, ultra runner, and peak bagger extraordinaire Gary Harrington about many things, but his book, Chasing Summits, which on the surface is about climbing a bunch of mountains, but under the covers is about how Gary went from, had a life change, you know, he went from a -a work-a-day guy, a divorce, struggling, overweight sports journalist, to a guy who created a lifestyle of physical freedom and physical and mental health. And as is so many times the case in our journey here at Run Run Live, What we find is that the running, the swimming, the hiking, the mountain climbing, they really weren't the point. They were the vehicle for the self-discovery. In section one, we'll talk a little bit about how to, to address what I think may be common right now, which is your sagging enthusiasm for running or working out in the apocalypse. In section two, we'll talk about strategies for creating freedom in your life. The last couple of weeks have been up and down for me. I have maintained my off-peak training schedule of getting out three or four times a week for a run with two or three core workouts, and I haven't been really good at keeping up with my yoga. (laughs) I've really lacked a lot of enthusiasm for my workouts as well. Nevertheless, I have gotten some fairly pleasant long runs in the woods with Ollie. 
there are a couple of compounding factors here that make this hard. First is my nine to five job has been mentally stressful and typically is more like eight to six. So by the time I roll out of a day, I'm fairly exhausted and not feeling the workout. And my workouts are consistently getting pushed to after work, right? After work hours. I could get out of bed early, but the sun doesn't come up until after six. So I'm in danger of missing those early calls. And I know, I know, I'm the last person who should be in this position. I literally wrote the book on how to train with a busy life. But there it is. This is different. Somehow, the current house arrest version of work, combined with nothing to train for, uh, makes working out feel kind of onerous and pointless. Humans, right? Just when we need it most, our brain manufactures ways to make it hard. The time change... And lack of sunlight has been harder this year than in previous years. I find that my eyes are really affected by staring at the computer all day, and they're not that great anymore. When I'm out in the woods at night, I can't see enough to manage the technical bits in the dark. And this leads to having to run constantly sort of on guard, which is kind of stressful. Uh, constantly tweaking my feet, rolling my ankles on roots and rocks, and consistently falling down. And none of this creates the mental relaxation that I go to for running and trail running. And I can go on the roads, but then, you know, I'm dealing with traffic and the dog and it's not the best. So when I got back from running one of the nights this week, I was just so mad I ordered one of those chest-based lighting systems. And I'm hoping if I can light up the trails better, it will take some of the stress out of it and open those low light options up a little bit. My current headlamp and handheld just aren't cutting the mustard. Ollie doesn't seem to care about any of that. He's happy to go on the leash or on the trails. He's a year and a half old now, and there's nothing that I can do that's going to beyond his physical ability. He's a horse of a dog, and I really have to be careful and present with him on the leash. If he decides to go call of the wild on me, I have trouble holding on. But I love him dearly, even when he ambushes me on the trails and takes a nip at me. Uh, last week, we had a coyote come in close to the yard and just sit and watch, and Ollie was freaking out. So hopefully it's not a sick animal, because they can be unpredictable. And I think Ollie could hold his own in a in a fight, right? Because as a sheepdog, it's basically what he's designed for, but I'd rather not find out, especially with a sick animal. So see, I told you, I was in a dark mood. So let's turn up the lights a little bit, shall we? Let's talk about yellow sticky pads. You know those little sticky pads? You know, you can jot down notes and stick them anywhere, stick them on the wall. I had a couple of days this week where I was Walking into full days of calls, back-to-back -back calls, some with angry customers. <laughs> and my first thought was, oh, I so don't want to do this today. So I wasn't showing up with a lot of energy. But I realized that I was going to probably do it no matter what. So I might as well set the tone. And if I was struggling to stay motivated, then, you know, everyone else probably was too. So I decided to do one thing that was under my control and not worry about all the rest. I decided to lead with joy, to show up in each of those calls and demonstrate joy, to smile, to ask them to smile with me, and to go about our business after we set that tone. 
Because even if you're totally out of control, you can still control how you show up. It's a choice. And I wrote joy, J-O-Y, in big block letters on a sticky and stuck it in the corner of my monitor to remind me. And I ask you, my friends, what would it take for you to show up with joy today or tomorrow? On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. How to rekindle your love for your sport in the apocalypse. And I admit to being a bit lost with no physical events on the calendar and nothing to train for. And we find ourselves treading water. It's late. It's dark. It's cold. Why should we get dressed up and go battle the trails just to wheeze and fall? Return to the house downtrodden and covered in dirt and blood? What's the point? Here's the part where I offer some advice, and then I try to follow it myself. Number one, remember when it was joyful. You wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for those times that it felt like a gift. Like you had something special that you could do, that you were somehow part of a special club, let in on a special secret. And when you get down on your workouts, Think back to one of those times. Channel the triumphant end of a qualifying marathon or the kissing the finish line moment of some other special event. Know that that was you in those pictures and channel that inner athlete. Or think of those peaceful times when everything seemed just right. When you were out at night in the crisp, dead cold of a January night, with the riot of stars in the winter sky and the dry air in your lungs. You are still that animal. Remember that. Number two, try something small. Maybe you can't get geared up for anything big. Try something small. Your mind needs a goal, but it doesn't have to be an organized goal or a big goal. Try something small. How about 20 push-ups a day for 20 days? Or simply making your bed every morning. Find that anchor of habit that you can wrap your head around and start your day with that and string a few of those together. Or number three, try something big, right? Even though it wasn't my A race this summer, the great virtual run across Tennessee, that thousand kilometer virtual race, it gave me something to do. If not exactly to focus on, at least to think about and contextualize the miles I was doing over the summer. And there are plenty of big virtual events you can sign up for right now. And each one of them comes with its own community. So find something challenging and let it focus your energy. Or number four, find a purpose. Maybe there's a way to combine what you are doing with something you love or believe strongly in. Can you help maintain the trails? Can you pick up litter on your local roads? What other purpose can you align your workouts with? And number five, find a friend. As much as the apocalypse isolates us, it is still very powerful to find a buddy or two that can share in some of your workouts. It doesn't have to be every time. It doesn't have to be perfect. But knowing someone is out there who you can share some miles with takes a burden off your soul. Number six, do something different. Maybe it's time 
to find something different. Maybe whatever the same old routine is is getting old and moldy. Try something new. Start a project. Sign up for virtual yoga. Sign up for virtual boot camp. I'm sure there's something, something new that you can commit to that will change up your routine and bring that fresh sense to your life. Number seven, train for a placeholder. Maybe all the races have been canceled. Or even worse, is that you don't know which ones are going to run and which ones aren't. There's no way to plan for a specific event because it might not happen. No problem. Make up a placeholder event. Call it 50K in April. Start training for it. Then, when April rolls around, you'll have the fitness that will give you options even if you don't have a specific race on the calendar. Number eight, visualize better times. Look into the future. Tell a story of the future where you are happy and participating in your sport the way you want to. Visualize that. Make up a future narrative where you can visualize that narrative. What will you be doing then? What will it be like? How will you feel? And then live your today in anticipation of that future narrative. Number nine, listen to a story. There are plenty of compelling narratives out there. There is plenty of compelling audio. Find something that you will look forward to listening to, something that you can get addicted to. And then the only way to get that next dose of it is to get out and do the workout. Link the habit to the audio reward. Number 10, buy something. There's nothing wrong with a little retail therapy in the apocalypse. Buy a new shirt or a new pair of shoes, something that gives you joy when you see them in the closet, and even more joy when you slip them on. Make it about the reward. Tie that workout to some joy. And number 11, hug someone. In this apocalypse, the isolation is what sucks our energy. I highly recommend increasing your daily dose of hugs. And there you go. 11 reasonably good ideas to help you get back on track with your waning enthusiasm for your workouts in the apocalypse. Put your excuses aside and engineer a way to be successful. The future is coming. And no matter how it turns out, I'm pretty sure you're going to want to be in good shape to face it. And now for today's featured interview. Gary Harrington, how are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. So why don't you give us, and this is hard for you, but the 200 words on uh, who you are and what you do and, and a little bit about what we're going to be talking about today. Oh, geez, that, that is a tough one. I seem to have so many hats uh, these days or over the course of my life, but uh, mostly my life is set up now so that I can spend as much time as possible adventuring. Do a lot of mountain climbing, ultra running, although I haven't done as much of that during the pandemic since all the races got canceled. Just bought a bicycle, going to start biking again, but spend much of the year living in my van, traveling around with my girlfriend, just uh, climbing mountains and uh, exploring. Work is kind of a four-letter word. We work to uh, pay for some of this, uh, but we only work a few months of the year so that we can uh, play a few months of the year. Yeah, so you and I were just talking. You and I are, are kind of of the same age group and same running scene up in Massachusetts. Sure, the trail run you've run together up at Wapak. But you 
we're talking today because I want to talk through book uh, Chasing Summits because it's interesting, right? It's a bunch of different story. And I think there's a lot there to tease out. But here's how I want to you started out in this world as a writer, a sports journalist, right? Um, so you have some pretty good writing experience. And I'm going to read a little bit from the opening introduction because I think this sort of contextualized the whole, right? Because there's so many people that I talk to that have this sort of epiphany, right? It's in their 30s or their 40s. And it's typically guys, although maybe it's just because I haven't found the women, where they're working along and they're overweight and something happened, right? And their whole yep. life changed, right? And you turn that up to 11. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I kind of take things to extremes. Yeah, so I mean, I'll, most of these folks, they end up as marathoners or ultra runners or Ironmen, right? And there's that's sort of where the arc ends. But with you, I think, like I said, you turned it up to 11. But let me read this and set, hopefully I'll do this just. Ready? So here's, here's yeah. the opening three paragraphs from your book or two paragraphs. Too many people today fail to live meaningful, fulfilling lives. Oh, everyone starts out with good intent. As children, we all had dreams and aspirations and made bold declarations that we were going to grow up to become astronauts or firemen or even the president, which seems to be a pretty low bar. But eventually, most of us forget our dreams and slip silently and willingly into a scripted life marked by a mundane nine-to-five existence. On the endless corporate treadmill, we compromise our souls for a weekly paycheck. The grind is punctuated only by vacations or worse, staycations, in which we accomplish little more than catching up on sleep or yard work. And then it's back to the grind. Following our precious short-term security too often leads to a lifelong a soul left catatonic as the body is overtaken by old age and death without ever having really lived, right? And that's the opening two paragraphs of this book. And I think that's what I mean by you took this epiphany in your, I guess, in your uh, early or mid 40s, turned it into a bunch of it, right? Wow, you're giving me goosebumps. Yeah, so I like that. I like that. <laughs> I like that writing, right? Good job. Thank you. So it really started, and like I said, a lot of these narratives are are similar where people, for you, it was you looked in the mirror one day or you saw a picture that your wife was looking at in in an album and you said, who's that fat guy, right? Yeah, yeah. It was right around Christmas of the year 2000, I believe, when that happened. And uh, soon after that, I found myself facing a uh, second divorce and I'd always been wanted to be a sports writer ever since I was 13 years old. In fact, that's when my career as a sports writer began when I was 13. And I carried it on through high school and college and then made it a career. But a lot of things were changing in my life around the new millennium, around 2000. As we all know, the internet was uh, making the newspaper industry kind of uh, meaningless. And it was no longer the fun job that it always had been before. So a lot was changing technology-wise there, and a lot was changing in my life. Uh, As I said, I was uh, facing a second divorce and uh, questioning personal questions that I needed to answer. And uh, I had not been running as much as I had been earlier in my life, and I put on about 40 pounds or so, which doesn't seem like a lot in America these days, but to me... An extra 40 pounds of my frame made me uh, unrecognizable to myself in a photo that my wife was looking at. Yeah, and it's funny how that creeps up on you, isn't it? It's not like it happens all of a sudden. It creeps up on you over a course of years, and then all of a sudden you're like, hey, wait a second, what happened? What happened to the person I was, right? Yeah, 
Yeah. And so for you, you said you, <laughs> again, it's sort of a classic narrative where you start doing something and then you just caught the bug and went all in. Yeah. I went out and climbed Mount Monadnock one day. I was living in Keene, New Hampshire. I was working for the newspaper there. And of course you turn around in Keene and Mount Monadnock staring you in the face. So I went and climbed it one day, remembered that I used to enjoy climbing it when I was younger and I got the binge. I started climbing it almost every day. And uh, it just kind of snowballed. The uh, weight started coming off. My mind started feeling clearer. And I started feeling free again. Instead of remembering those dreams that I'd had when I was younger. Yep. So this is, we were talking earlier about your book. Every one of these chapters could be its own book. And this first bit, when you're climbing Mount Monadnock, you meet the guy, uh, Alex, sort of the, the wanderer there. Oh, Larry Davis, the guy Larry, that climbed yeah, it every yeah, yeah. day. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the guy, that's what he does. He climbs Monadnock every day and you take him on some trips with you. That reminded me a little bit of uh, a walk in the woods where the two guys are trying to do the Appalachian Trail. One yeah. of them's kind of an oddball. But yep. uh, yeah, and you guys end up going south of the border and doing all kinds of other mountains. So it just, it escalates from there. Yeah, taking him to the Canary Islands to climb a volcano was like uh, something out of Crocodile Dundee. Yeah. Larry's quite character. If anybody's climbing Adnock over the years, they certainly probably have run into him. He's no longer there. He's climbing up in the White Mountains these days, living in Gorham, New Hampshire. But uh, back in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, Larry was there every day. Right. And it just goes to show that you, again, we hear about people who do something where they say, okay, I'm going to run, I'm going to run a mile. Or the guy down in Florida who runs on the five miles on the beach, right? And just by doing that intentionally, you start to pull people into your circle, right? Even though you're just doing that for yourself, things like that tend to create momentum. Yeah. And I kind of uh, bit the bug on Monadnock myself and uh, became one of those uh, binge climbers. I was there almost every day and uh, tried to go after some of the records up there, which I was finally uh, able to succeed at. Yep. And so in the midst of all this mountain climbing, you still out doing trail races, right? Yeah, I got into trail running around when I came back as a runner around the, my 40th birthday. I decided to come back on the trails. I'd always been a road runner before, but the, the roads just beat your legs up. And I had met some friends that were ultra marathoners. Uh, when they first uh, told me about that, I had to ask what an ultra marathoner was. I didn't even know. But uh, the trails are so much more fun and so much kinder to your body. Yeah. And one of the things that people don't realize is how good mountain climbing is for training for trail run. It's yeah, that's basically all I did. I would hike much more than I would run when I was getting ready for a 100 miler. Yep. And you say, well, how does that work? I have a friend who's training to do the AT. He was going to do it this year, but it got pandemic aided. But he was hiking every day to uh, train him for the AT. And he went and signed up for a half marathon, trail half marathon, and ended up getting a PR because he's been yeah. just hiking every day, training for the for the AT, not because he trained, right? And this guy's 60. He's over 60. You get so don't underestimate the amount of fitness you can get from mountain climbing, from hiking. And Monadnock's not, not yeah. a giant mountain. I mean, it's maybe, what, 4,000 feet that. Um, yeah, and just from over 3,000. Yeah, from the parking lot, it's probably less, right? So you're probably up and down. You're doing that in less than what? What are you doing down on a day? Uh, well, it's about eighteen hundred feet of climb from the main parking lot to the summit, and uh, I do believe I still currently hold the record there for the fastest round trip on the White Dot Trail. 
just under 41 minutes. Yep. Yep. It's a very heavily climbed mountain, probably yep. worse now with pandemic. So yeah, I've yeah. seen some recent posts and especially on Columbus Day earlier this year, there was just looked like there were thousands of people on the summit at one time. Yeah. It's one um, part of me says that's great. This many people are getting engaged in the beautiful woods and trails around us. And part of me is like, get off my lawn. So yeah, the mountains being loved to death. Yep. So you come out of Monadnock and then you start going to South America, climbing volcanoes. I mean, some of that stuff you did down in, I think it was Ecuador or Honduras with the, um, the caves and the volcanoes sounded Again, you could make that into its own novel, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was uh, in Guatemala, actually. And uh, some of the volcanoes I climbed were still active. In fact, they were throwing lava up in the air and the lava was landing within 30 feet of us. And uh, the guides that we had with us that day are just sitting there eating their lunch, not concerned at all. But thinking back about it now, that certainly wouldn't be allowed in the U.S. They'd, you'd, they wouldn't get you within, uh, like uh, in Hawaii, you can't get within a mile of uh, anything that's flowing, maybe two miles. Yeah, because it could cough up one of those lava balls. It would kill you if it hit you, right? <laughs> yeah, apparently yeah. that had happened too to some guides so or yeah. a guide. So. But So let me ask you this, right? With some of these trips that you had, you were cramming in so much into these trips. Did it ever feel like you were just sort of driving in a fast car looking out the window? Like the scene from the movie where they show up at the Grand Canyon and go, okay, that's Grand Canyon, let's go, right? Well, I don't know. Some people have asked me that question, but there's been some mountains that I've climbed that I, I don't have any memory of. I was just checking them off a list. But for the most part, no, every climb has been unique and memorable. It took a while to get to the point where I was doing some of these bigger mountains. Uh, after all those days on Monadnock, I had not even gone to the White Mountains yet for like three or four years to start climbing up there because I had read all those uh, stories in like Not Without Peril about how dangerous it was on Mount Washington. So it took me a yeah. while to even uh, venture past Monadnock to get up to the White Mountains. Yeah, and I would think that Washington would be right there on your list because that's in the right weather. It's not a hard climb, just you were doing it in some dicey weather, right? Uh, one time, yeah, we climbed Mount Washington on a uh, very ferocious day. We were lucky to get off is without any incident. Yeah, and um, I love the whites up there. I love the, the presidential rain. Some of the trails are yeah. So, yeah, in 2004, I ventured up to the White Mountains for the first time. Uh, I met a hiker on Monadnock who was uh, working on the 4,000 footers, and I hadn't really given them any thought at all. But I did the first one with her in January on Musalak and uh, was hooked right then and uh, spent like every weekend for the rest of the summer finishing off the 67 4,000 footers in New England. That was the big project in the uh, summer of 2004 when I had uh, lost my job at the Keene Sentinel newspaper and started uh, rethinking how I wanted the rest of my life to go. So with this, were you always with people or or did you get to, like trail runners and ultra runners and hikers, you need to spend a lot of time ahead, right? And you find that helpful yeah. when you're making these life transitions? Yeah, I did climb a lot of those mountains solo. I had a lot of time off that year, 2004. I would climb with friends on the weekend, but during the week, I would stay up in the White Mountains often and just hike on my own solo. So I did a lot of the peaks by myself. That does give you a lot of time to think. I did take my first trip down to Guatemala that same spring. So I did a lot of new mountains down there. And when I got back, I also did Monadnock almost every day when I was around. So that does give you a lot of time to think, but I didn't really think too far 
about my future and it kind of fell into place for me that fall when a friend told me that uh, UPS hires drivers to deliver seasonally at Christmas time. And I've been doing that every fall or every Christmas season since then, just seasonal so that I have uh, the rest of the year to do my adventures. Yeah. And that sounds like the narrative of a lot of the millennials through the 2000s, where these folks were all about designing their lives, finding ways to retire early and that sort of thing, right? And all these adventures. You meet a lot of these people when you're out traveling in the world, these folks who had sort of decided to become untethered from the workaday life and go off adventuring on their own. Is there sort of a culture around this? Yeah, there is. And I didn't meet so many of them while I was out climbing or exploring so much as I have recently in the last five years. It uh, doesn't show up in the book so much because the book takes you through my climb on Denali in 2016. But since then, I've pretty much been living in a van. Right. I'm now I'm in van 2.0 now. I've got a high roof uh, Dodge Promaster that I spend most of the year living in. And being out on the road, that's where I've met other van lifers, uh, pretty much doing the same things that uh, we are. Uh, my girlfriend and I living in the van and traveling and exploring and just being free. Yeah. You had so many projects here. In the middle, you also did the highest point in every state in the U.S. And then you went to Europe and did the big climbs there, including the Matterhorn, right? Yeah. This is serious mountain climbing. This is like requires ropes and all that, right? I mean, that can't be the cheapest of uh, occupations when you have to get seriously into the climbing gear. Yeah. I've been able to offset some of that by borrowing some gear and uh, getting people to go with me that have the necessary skills and gear as far as the ropes and uh, the carabiners and things like that. But uh, after climbing all the 4,000 footers in New England back in the early 2000s, I just had to think about how I could up my game. And uh, the first thing I did starting in 2006 was come out to the Rockies in Colorado and climb all the 14,000 footers in Colorado. In fact, when I ended up moving to Colorado in 2009, I would meet climbers out there and they would say, oh, you're from back east. Boy, we have some real mountains out here with the emphasis on real, like the uh, 4,000 footers are only hills or something. And I go, yeah, I know you got these 14,000 footers. I've climbed them all already. And they were stunned to find out that uh, somebody from New Hampshire had been out enough times to climb all the 14ers in Colorado already. Yeah. Yeah. And that meant for you, as I was reading through this, you were doing two or three or four pounds in a day sometimes, right? Yeah. I was on the fast track because I would come out during a break from my UPS duties in September when the weather is pretty much perfect in Colorado and uh, just binge climb 14ers for three weeks straight. Yeah, it's amazing. What's the end game for you here, Gary? I mean, what you're living in living um, in a van, driving around, running races, climbing mountains, having fun. What's well, the next thing? Why does there have to be an end game? Why why can't it just continue? I I don't know. That's my question. <laughs> I do have some more goals. I checked off quite a few lists. Like after climbing all the 14ers in Colorado, I went out to California and climbed all the 14ers there as well. And then climbed Mount Rainier, which ironically, Mount Rainier has two ranked summits on it, which I didn't know at the time. The first time I climbed Mount Rainier in Washington, I just went to the main summit and came back down. And then uh, I thought I had finished all the 14ers in the lower 48, only to realize that there was a second summit on Mount Rainier that I had to go back and get. Yeah. So in 2016, 
a buddy of mine from Alaska who also needed the second summit on Rainier, we went back together and became the 12th and 13th people ever to finish all the ranked 14ers in the lower 48. That was a lot of fun. And uh, just recently, I've been working on the 100 highest peaks in the contiguous United States. And a couple months ago, I completed that list and became only the fifth person ever, according to a website called Lists of John, to uh, complete all the 100 highest peaks in the contiguous U.S., the lower 48. So again, I'm at that point in my life where I'm looking and saying, okay, what else can I do? Because you set big goals and then you meet them and you go, okay, well, it has to be a bigger goal. But then I look at myself and go, well, you're coming up on 60 years old. You should think twice about that. how do you approach that, right? Looking forward as to what's and thinking about getting older, getting slower, that sort of thing. Yeah, well, I'm definitely getting slower and there's no choice about getting older. The alternative is not acceptable. I have two real goals. I want to finish the Hard Rock 100 in Colorado. I run it twice and had special issues come up both times that kept me from finishing. And these days it's harder to get into Hard Rock than I guess it is to finish it with the lottery system that they have for that race and everybody wanting to get in. The next year's lottery is coming up in three weeks and I'm hoping to uh, get in. I really want to go to Silverton, Colorado and finish that race and get to kiss that rock at the finish line, which uh, signifies that you've completed the 100 miles. And uh, the second thing we're working on is my girlfriend and I are going to go down to Baja in January on our bikes. And I don't even own a bike until I didn't own a bike until about two weeks ago. I just bought a mountain bike that uh, we're going to go down and do the Baja divide route which is a 1700 mile mountain bike route down the spine of uh, Baja. So yeah, that's going to be something totally different. That's going to be totally out of my element. I've not been on a bike in like 20 years. I haven't owned one, I should say in about 20 years. Yeah. We're talking mountain biking here, obviously. Yeah. It's mountain biking with the, uh, um, it's bike touring with the, 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 all the bags attached to the sides. It's just much harder to do on a mountain bike than it is, you see all those people doing cross-country routes on road bikes with all those bags hanging off the side. Um, yeah, this will be on the much, trails, much, you're not going to be able to hold, you know, you're probably doing six, seven miles an hour average a day, right? Yeah. Yeah, we're looking maybe at 35, 40 miles a day. We're not going to take the fast track. Yeah. And uh, we've got some other people going with us. A friend of mine who lives in Oklahoma, he just finished kayaking the entire length of the Mississippi River a couple of weeks ago. And uh, for his next adventure, he suggested this Baja Divide mountain bike route. And I said, we're in. Yeah, because you've been down in the Baja before. You've been climbing, right? Yeah, I've been hiking and exploring and uh, climbing down in Southern Baja, especially. And uh, that's one of the chapters in the book is when uh, me and a buddy from uh, Lowell, Massachusetts, his name is Van. He's a Cambodian refugee, actually. And uh Probably an interesting character to uh, have on a future podcast if you want. And, yeah, it uh, sounds sounds like an interesting dude. Yeah, he joined me on that trip down through Baja and down through Central America that year. We got a lot of peaks in. Yeah, that's amazing. So you're probably, like I said, you've got multiple books there. How do you keep track of all this stuff? Oh, geez. Take, well, taking notes as you go. And so let's not worry about that. That's more of a mechanical question to take you out here. I also notice. I think there's stories in here you haven't told. Because I notice a lot of uh, young women and beer 
get mentioned in your book. So, <laughs> so I think there's stories yeah. you're not telling, Gary. Well, I think I did try to tell those stories in the first draft, but the uh, editor at the uh, my book is published by the AMC Books in Boston, <laughs> and uh, my editor streamlined a lot of the more risque stuff that I might have included in my first draft. I certainly wasn't. <laughs> I certainly was not afraid to make fun of myself. I think you have to uh, have some self-deprecating humor to get through this life, and there was much of it in the book that uh, my editor thought was a little too much over the top, and she edited it out. So yeah, that makes so, sense now. It's more about the mountains than than the exactly. Uh, exactly. That's what I was told. Yeah. And I said, "Oh yeah. well." There was a lot, a few stories that uh, remained untold. Um, <laughs> some of them did involve some beer. Yeah. But uh, I think as you read the book, you'll see that there's quite a bit of detail in there. I really tried to make it feel like the reader was right there beside me on these adventures, and. I think I was able to do that because I journaled all my trips. I, I journaled every single day and kept copious notes so that right. when it was time to uh, sit down and write the book, and, and the book was a six-year project from start to finish, it pretty much wrote itself as it went because I had, had done such a good job in journaling my adventures. Right. Yep. Yep. And that frees you up to be able to add the prose if you have all the facts straight. That's what I do as well. Yeah. Great. So I'll let you go. We've overrun a little bit here. I'll let you go. Uh, where can people find you? Well, the, these days I'm in uh, Tucson, Arizona. I'm on Facebook. But uh, anyone who's interested in getting a copy of the book, uh, the book title is called Chasing Summits in Pursuit of High Places and an Unconventional Life. And I do have a Facebook page for, for the book called uh, Chasing Summits. If uh, and they can order a copy, a signed copy of the book off of that page by clicking on the contact us button. In fact, I got to go to the post office this morning and mail out uh, a book that uh, a friend of mine just bought uh, yesterday. So, uh, or the book is on Amazon and it is in all the AMC buildings, all the hot, uh, well, um, like the Joe Dodge Lodge up in uh, Pinkham Notch in the bookstore there and in Crawford Notch. So, uh, AMC has the book available at all their locations, yep. and uh, I even saw it at AMC Hut. Uh, somebody they had it on the shelf, and yeah. I walked in and walked in and saw it on the shelf. And uh, somebody said, "Hey, that's you." And I said, "Oh, thank you." And uh, would you like me to sign sign it? So I signed it to the best crew in the White Mountains. I now I have to admit I forget which hut I was in at that time, but I think it was Madison. So. Yeah. All right. Well, I got to let you get back to your work so you can make enough money to go on your next adventure. Yes. Thank you, Chris. All right. Thanks, Gary. We'll talk. All right. Okay. Thank you. Have right. a good one. Bye. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Van life. <laughs> How do you go from nine to five to living in a van? I'm sitting in my improvised home office again. It's month nine of the apocalypse. I'm feeling very much like a prisoner this week. House arrest. Feeling like an appliance attached to the corporate world by a long, thin network connection. And you remember that scene from the first Matrix movie where all the humans are plugged into the machine as an energy source? It feels a bit like that. I get up in the morning, I walk the dog, I make my coffee, I log in and have Zoom calls, I fall further behind, I catch up, I have good days, I have bad days. Like being a prisoner, it can be very disempowering. 
Like being under house arrest, it erodes your personal agency. In the bottom line, layman's terms, you don't feel like you're in control of your life. And to some extent, humans never are, but the illusion of control allows us to get out of bed every morning. I am a prisoner to the apocalypse. We all are. We get out of our cells once a day to walk the exercise yard. We strive, we adapt. It's what we humans do. But there's something missing, especially for those of us with the wanderlust gene. We feel like the walls are closing in. And so our confinement becomes a focus on scarcity. How do we keep enough of the balls in the air to not get the beating? That causes risk avoidance thinking and cowering in the corner trying not to make a mistake. I say this because as that long, thin network connection with the corporate world becomes more punitive and less fulfilling, your, your mind wanders. You get disengaged. You begin to think of greener pastures, of escape. If the game won't let you play, then maybe you take your ball and you go find another game. There's a mental shift going on in this apocalypse. We are all looking at what we do as it is stripped bare of its creative and interesting bits and wondering why we do it. We are creatures of free will. The apocalypse is causing us to look at the quiet desperation of our work lives in new relief. And many of us wonder if there isn't another way. And into these gaps in workaday consciousness, other narratives can creep. Is there a way to break the master's bonds and live a life of freedom? And of course there is, but it's not all or nothing. There's a spectrum of freedom that starts on one side with the nine-to-five corporate wage workers and ends on the other side as an untethered vagabond living in a van. In between, there are shades of gray. There was also the question of physical freedom versus psychological freedom. What is it that you are really looking for? What are some strategies to consider moving forward on either spectrum? Are you running away from something or towards something else? When we speak of physical freedom, what is it that we're longing for? Is it the ability to do what we want, when we want, anywhere we want? Instead of having to be stuck in your home office talking at a computer screen, would you rather be in your flower garden contemplating next year's Narcissus crop or wandering the open road, vagabonding with your dog? That's an example of physical freedom. Psychological freedom is using your mind to achieve a sense of personal freedom, even if physically you are still tied to a specific situation. Physical freedom is the harder of the two. Here we find a trade-off and maybe a balance. What do you do if you, want, if you don't want to spend 9 to 5 working for the man? You can be creative about career choice so that maybe that activity overlaps with what you would be doing if you were free to do it anyhow. But for many, that ship has sailed, or more accurately, that ship has been anchored in place by a mortgage, a car loan, and tuition payments, not to mention family, relationship, and community anchors that are built into your current role. In order to get physical freedom, you need to find a way to sever those anchor lines. And how willing are you to walk away from those things? Is the pull of greener pastures stronger than the fear of that loss? 
and the idiot's choice is to decide to work harder and longer for some ill-defined period of time, and in that way, earn your way to physical freedom, earn your way to freedom. This sounds great, but it seldom is a reasonable choice. This strategy always falls prey to the iron rule of spending up to your earning. The goalposts always move. As the old saying goes, the best way to get out of a hole is to stop digging. Ironically, one of the suggestions that the freedom lifestylers always have is to ask your boss to let you work from home. (laughs) Now that we're all doing that anyhow, you get a taste of the good and the bad of that particular partial physical freedom. But the truth is, if you want physical freedom, you're going to need to re-engineer your life to get it. And the fewer things you own, the easier this is. Just like any change, you're going to be forced to drop some balls. You can't have everything. Some of the disconnections are going to be hard. But the good news is, you can always get psychological freedom, because this comes from within. Most of the things in life are ultimately out of your control, but one key thing isn't. It's how you choose to think about it. If Viktor Frankl can choose psychological freedom in the concentration camps, we can certainly choose it in our 9 to 5. As the Buddha would say, you can't avoid pain, but you can choose whether or not to suffer. If you choose to enjoy your work, it simply becomes enjoyable. If you choose to live each day in gratitude, then it becomes so. If you choose to be free in your mind, you are free. No one can take that from you. The two, then, become related and empowering. If you choose to live psychologically free, it will begin to manifest and influence your physical freedom. Being psychologically free can lead you to those actions necessary to become physically free. If you choose to live an abundant life, that abundance will manifest whether you work for a bank and live in a townhouse or live in a van traveling the country to run up and down mountains. Coming to that peaceful clarity in your brain allows you to consider things in a new light. Maybe all those necessary and must-have anchors in your physical life are not as necessary as you think. Maybe they are a mask for your freedom. If you are feeling untethered in the apocalypse, start by looking inside. Start by considering what really gives you joy and what takes joy away. What you may find is the simple things like a sunrise at dawn give you the most joy, and that some of the things that you've been programmed with can be put aside as you shift towards the other end of the physical and psychological spectrum of freedom. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, we have vagabonded around the world chasing mountaintops to the end of episode 4 dash. 443 of the Run Run Live podcast. So another name for the binge listener list is uh, Michael. Michael and I have known, I've known Michael for a long time, probably five years, but apparently he went back and listened through the original four years when he started, and that's not easy. I'm getting to the end of one of my podcasts, another one, my History of Egypt podcast that I had binged through while painting the house. So I'll take any suggestions for something new and interesting in the history space. 
And in related entertainment news, I got a couple things for you. First is I started re- I started watching The Walking Dead again. I had stopped watching it. And frankly, the last couple seasons are just not interesting. I mean, this this show always created tension by being willing to kill off main characters, even main characters you really liked. But the challenge there is that after you kill off all those main characters that you really like, you're left with a bunch of secondary characters that just aren't interesting. So, yeah. And I watched a movie last night called Overlord on Amazon Prime, and it's a J.J. Abrams movie. It's like a video game, and it had zombies in it. So it gets my uh, gets my recommendations, gets my thumbs up. Uh, a lot of action. You'll like it. In the two days between writing the intro to this show, which we just listened to earlier, and writing the outro, which I'm reading now, my chest lighting system showed up, along with a pair of winter gloves I ordered. And I have not tried the lighting system yet, but it has a white LCD light in the center of your chest and a red warning light on your back, and it's USB chargeable, so no more batteries. Uh, The waistband goes around your torso like a belt with uh, the two lights, front and back, and there's a single shoulder strap that goes over one shoulder, and it's called a West Light Running Light 5508. And I'll let you know if it helps with my old eyes in the woods. It was 20 bucks on Amazon. And the gloves are a thicker winter glove. My hands get really cold in the winter, and I have misplaced my thicker running gloves. I So I ordered some new ones. They are Prodigen Outdoor Winter Gloves, Touchscreen Running Warm Gloves, which is a keyword-rich description, isn't it? And it's hard to shop for gloves online because you really can't know how warm they are until you have them. But uh, these look, looked warm. I just wore them, actually. Uh, right now, I went out this morning. It was about, just about freezing, and they weren't great. My hands were still cold, so that was a fail. And I should mention that it seems like the number one requirement for gloves these days is being able to poke at your phone with them. And I have to confess that I seldom have a desire to poke at my phone in situations where I'm wearing thicker gloves, but I guess it's a nice to have. And indeed, these, I was able to take a couple pictures with my phone today with these gloves. And finally, I bought a bunch of socks. I'm pretty hard on running socks. I like the thin versions. And typically, my big toe pushes a hole in all but the most aggressive running socks. I hold out as long as I can. You know, I put them on the other foot with the hole, and right? And uh, I run with them, uh, or I try to sew them up, but I was failing. I was running out. So again, buying socks on the internet is hard because you can't see them. You can't touch them. So I just opted for a multi-pack of Saucony running socks called Saucony Men's Multi-Pack Bolt Performance Comfort Fit No-Show Socks. Again, surprisingly keyword rich there, but also there doesn't seem to be a need to poke at your phone with your toes. That, that isn't an option at all. But it would not surprise me as the next generation. And I don't know what the material is, but they slip down inside my shoes when I'm running. <laughs> and I have to either deal with it or stop and pull them up. I mean, they seem functional. I'll get, maybe after I wash them a couple times, they'll perform better. I'll, I'll give them less than six months, though, before I tear holes in them. But, you know, one thing is they're super comfy to wear around the office in the apocalypse because no one wears shoes in the apocalypse. 
And yeah, Ollie Wally is still doing well. He and I get out a couple times a week. He's still very energetic. But with both my wife and I home, he's also learning to be a bit more cuddly. It's hard for him. He's not a hugger. I was just checking out the mail, and uh, my neighbor stopped me to complain about Ollie barking. Ollie does bark at the people in the woods a lot. He's just doing his job. But the neighbor said it was bothersome at 10 o'clock at night, and to which I replied, that is impossible because neither Ollie nor I are awake past 9. <laughs> so... Taking a rest day on Saturday, and then a long run on Sunday, which I just did this morning. I worked in the yard, raked and cut some wood, and my knees were kind of crunchy after my hill workout on Friday on the road, and I realized that my shoes were getting old. I had, I went and looked, and sure enough, I bought those shoes in October of 2019, so I ordered some new Hoka Cliftons. We'll see. I need to find something to train for. I'd prefer it be something challenging so I can get some of the old fire back. But, of course, all the Thanksgiving races are canceled, victims of the apocalypse. I'm not going to do the uh, Groton Marathon, my made-up marathon this year. It's just another thing to worry about at the end of the year, and I don't need any more things to worry about. But this would be the perfect time to change routines and take up like swimming or lifting or something. But all the gyms are closed too. Makes you wish you bought Peloton uh, stock, doesn't it? I'm going to have to think about it. I need something to motivate me. I'm still plugging away at my apocalypse stories and I'll drop them onto the Run Run Live feed randomly as I get them written. Uh, Kind of failing at the NaNoWriMo. (laughs) But I'm getting a couple out. I guess life right now for all of us is like that that scene in the scary movie right maybe the zombie movie where the protagonists have survived the initial disaster in one piece and they're experiencing that 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 calm spot that rel- relatively calm spot but as we watch them recuperating and rebuilding their energy we know there are more bad guys there's more zombies hiding just behind the tree, just around the corner. And as the scary, ominous music builds, bottom, bottom, bottom. I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.